Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. That's IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and your host for this episode. I'm joined today by Ellery Monks. She's co-founder of The Atlas, which is a free online community for state and local government leaders to browse case studies, follow trending topics, and crowdsource ideas. Before founding The Atlas, Ellery worked as a philanthropically funded consultant, helping local governments to solve complex infrastructure problems. She also served in the Obama administration, where she provided analytical and technical support to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy on a wide range of infrastructure, energy, and environment issues. During our conversation on March 10th, 2022, Ellery and I discussed the origin story and goals of the Atlas and the major opportunities and challenges presented to state and local governments by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Let's get to the conversation. Ellery, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. I, like a lot of others, found the Atlas organically, which I hope is what you hope happens, that people interested in local governments and funding issues and things like that find the Atlas. And I wonder if you could start off by giving us a little bit of the origin story. Why did you decide to launch the Atlas? I'd be happy to give you the founding story. So I'm Ellery. It's nice to be here. I'm I'm one of the co-founders of the Atlas. And just to give you a little bit of brief background on myself, because it's kind of tied up in the founding story of the Atlas. Before I founded the Atlas, I was a philanthropically supported consultant helping state and local governments pursue awesome infrastructure projects. And before that, I had a fellowship at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And me and my co-founder both kind of started off our careers in Washington, D.C., and we were really fresh-faced, idealistic, naive kids who wanted to change the world and who were really attracted to the scale of the federal government and the just the amazing dollar amounts, basically, that are involved. And we both felt really passionately that federal government was kind of the way to change the world. We got there and it felt like a black box. The scale was so big that you were actually removed from the impacts of the work that you were trying to pursue. And for me, just on a personality level, the timelines were very long (laughs) and I am inherently a very impatient person and kind of by fate, we started working with local governments through a variety of initiatives. So I was really heavily involved in the Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force, for instance, and had a chance to work with a bunch of New York and New Jersey communities and fell in love with the local level, with local government. It was closer to people, closer to problems, and so closer to solutions. And that was wildly attractive to us. We left the Obama administration and started doing that consulting work that I mentioned, supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. And we went into it and we thought, okay, the barriers to local governments pursuing really awesome infrastructure projects, it's going to be financing and procurement. 
like they're not going to be able to pay for it. And if they can pay for it, they're going to have issues actually buying it because of red tape. And those were both barriers for sure. But there was a much more human barrier. And that is that state and local government officials and staff are extremely risk adverse. And there are really, really good reasons for that risk aversion. That's not when I'm saying y'all are risk adverse. I don't mean that as a knock. There are good reasons. You don't want people tampering with the water supply or highway safety. And so there are really good reasons for that. But the reality is before any local government can do anything new or even what's not really new, but what they perceive to be new, what's new for them, they need to be able to confidently say, here's another city or another local government that has pursued something very similar. This is how much it cost. These were the partners that were involved. These were the outcomes. This was the RFP that was used. (laughs) Uh, And in an ideal world, right, they even talk to the other local government officials or staff person who was involved in that project. That kind of due diligence was the bare minimum of what was required before a local leader could think about going to a mayor or council or whatever their boss was to say, I think we should try this new thing. And that's what I'm describing, that kind of risk aversion and the whole de-risking of doing new things. That's what inspired the Atlas. And that continues to be our driving kind of mission and vision. So fundamentally, the Atlas is a free online community for state and local government leaders to do three things. The first is to browse case studies of best practices. The second is to follow trending topics in state and local government. And the third is to post questions to one another to crowdsource ideas and advice. And fundamentally, we're really big believers that if we can equip state and local government leaders with better, faster information and better, faster partners, they'll be able to make better decisions more quickly. And that's the key to unlocking transformative change in our communities. And so if I have the story right, you launched in 2019. Is that correct? It is. And right around the corner from that was the onset of the pandemic, which had big impacts for state (laughs) and local governments. So I wonder what changed immediately or is still changing at the Atlas in terms of content you're putting out there, how people are engaging with the site. What does that look like? So in the early days of the pandemic, there was, well, first of all, in the very earliest days of the pandemic, there was like, there were dark days where everything almost completely shut down. The site was very quiet. All of a sudden there was maybe like a month, maybe six weeks of the dark days. And after that, all of a sudden activity skyrocketed around things like digital government, work from home. If you recall back in those early days, the things that local governments, municipal governments were really on the front lines of pursuing and kind of needed to adapt unbelievably quickly to being able to provide essential services in pandemic times. There was an enormous, enormous amount of technology adoption in a very, very, very short amount of time. And we saw that I mean, it was great. It was crazy <laughs> in terms of the ser- in terms of the search trends. Things have have since evened out, and now they're kind of 
it ebbs and flows based on what is top of mind for folks. We saw huge spikes around policing and racial justice and all those kinds of things this in, I think it was last summer that has since calmed down. Right now we're experiencing a huge, huge, huge influx and trends around infrastructure funding, finance, federal funding, IJA, all of the stuff that we're here to talk about today. And so it's kind of evened out and it's back to, you know, a little bit more of what you would expect. You mentioned the heavy rush towards tech, for example, early discussions we were having in Delaware were all about kind of purchasing laptops, making sure people we didn't think needed laptops in the past had them now. Yep. And then also the risk aversion is real. I mean, a lot of the discussions we had about ARPA and are having still about ARPA and now IJA are who has done what, (laughs) you know, how are people spending the money? And, you know, that's how I organically found my way to the Atlas was when your IJA handbook came out for state and local government leaders looking for who's thinking about this and trying to frame the conversation. So I hope it didn't steal your thunder, but why did you choose to create this handbook and what are you trying to impart with it? So the IJA handbook, we weren't planning, I wasn't planning on writing it and we were not planning on creating it. It was very much responsive to needs that we were seeing in our community of state and local government leaders. And really the conversations that we were hearing and that we were part of, and honestly still are, like we haven't, the handbook has not solved this dynamic entirely. We're trying to help it, but we're never going to solve it. But it was that IJA got signed into law. It's this enormous, enormous amount of money, right? $1.3 trillion, like $550 billion in new spending. It's like incredible in terms of just the scale of it and the scope of it. And local leaders, especially from small and mid-sized cities, were looking at it. And the conversation was, oh my gosh, this is so much money. I know that this is potentially transformative. They haven't announced any of the details yet, like the specific funding details. So I don't know what... I can do to get ready for this funding. But my past experience tells me that when the funding opportunities get announced, the timeline is going to be really short. And so I know that I need to be doing something now or that I should be doing something now, but I don't know what. And this is incredibly overwhelming. <laughs> and and there and nobody really knew where to start. And I think we're really strangely positioned because, you know, we kind of have our, what's the phrase? We have like our finger on the pulse at the local level because of the community, but me, because of my background in the Obama administration, have like a really weird window into what's happening at the federal agencies right now. And we were having, I was having these conversations with community members and saying, we actually know a lot more about IJA than everybody thinks we do. We know which money is going to move more quickly than other money. We know, we know a lot more (laughs) than everybody thinks. And if we focus on what we do know, 
that will kind of suggest some concrete tactical steps that state and local government leaders should be taking right now to prepare for this influx of federal money. And that's really what inspired us to create it. As I mentioned, as we got started, I had a session yesterday where we had Delaware leaders talking about a lot of these same issues and kind of the where to start questions. Could you give us a little broad sense of what we do know now and what that suggests about what steps should be in the next two to three months, for example, in a local government? Yeah. So we know a lot. We know, broadly speaking, the types of projects or the categories of projects that will be funded. It's literally, it's in the legislation itself. That's how we structured the handbook, is to break it down by sector. We know that certain types of funding will move more quickly than others. So for instance, money that is being distributed via existing federal programs, where those existing federal programs are just getting more money through IJA, that money is going to move much, much, much more quickly than money that requires the federal agencies to stand up entirely new programs. So for instance, lead service line replacement, that's a type of project that we know that's going to be funded through IJA. It's a huge priority. That money is primarily going to be awarded or exclusively awarded through SRFs, through the state revolving loan programs. That's a very, very, very well-established federal program. It's a, that's a strong muscle in terms of federal government getting money out the door. That money is going to show up for state and local governments way faster than something like broadband. Broadband is, there's no real clear federal agency owner. There is not a long history that we're drawing on there. There's not a lot of precedent about getting that money out. And so you can expect that that money is on a different timescale. You're talking about probably a year, maybe 18 months difference in terms of when that money actually shows up. Talk about Delaware a little more. We are mostly small local governments. So 57 towns, three counties. Most of the towns have fewer than 2,500 people. That's a small town anywhere in America. So I, I wonder from your perspective, what are some of those challenges at the smaller scale dealing with IJA? So the challenges are enormous for small communities, rural communities, low-income communities, tribal nations. The challenges are enormous. And this is one of my chief criticisms of IJA which is that the legislation is written in a way that there's a ton of money that's coming out and it's written into into the legislation, right? That they want as much of this money as possible going to historically underserved communities. And that's rural, tribal, low-income, minority across the board. The reality is that there are really serious structural challenges that prevent these small townships, rural communities from actually accessing competitive federal funding, especially. And I'm happy to detail some of them, but that's that starts with how the programs themselves are structured, like the fact that they're competitive to begin with. 
and that it is really, really onerous for rural community or small township to apply for federal funding that they have no guarantee of getting because simply the act of pulling together an application can be very expensive and time time consuming and it can be very distracting. And there's no, uh, a lot of these communities have been burned before, right? They've pulled together applications, they've submitted, they've really put their best foot forward and they have not received funding. And so convincing them to kind of try and try and try again is it can be very difficult. So it starts at kind of that really high level standpoint. But then when you go kind of on the ground and see what's happening, you're talking about communities that a lot of them don't have full-time staff. If they do, it's not technical staff that can pull together really compelling, comprehensive funding applications, right? And so there's a really significant capacity problem kind of at the ground level. Then you're talking about long-term financial sustainability when you get into things like matching requirements and you get into things like, oh, the federal funding is going to cover the upfront capital costs. It's not going to cover O&M. So now you're talking about small, rural, tribal, low-income communities having to figure out how to carry long-term financial liabilities on their books. It gets, it's, it's very, very complicated and it can be extremely onerous for these communities. And that's my chief criticism and concern is that I think the federal agencies and Congress and the Biden administration, I think they're very earnest in wanting to get as much of this money possible to these types of communities, but it requires a lot of structural improvements and changes in order to get these communities access to the funding. And I, I don't think that it's happening. Seems like the cat's out of the bag a little bit because the legislation happened and the funding, you know, is going to be rolling out over the next few years here. But what opportunities do you think there are to put some supportive structures in place to address grant writing or the capacity once you get the grant? What would you like to see populate the case study part of your website in a few years as people start to do some good things out there? So I think that some of the biggest opportunities for rural communities, small townships, tribal nations is to take a more regional or more coordinated approach to some of these projects. That can be very, very difficult depending on, and I'm not as familiar with Delaware in terms of your guys' kind of like regional organization or if it all goes through the state. But this is where things like councils of government come in. And that can be a really, really good springboard for coordinating federal funding applications and bringing in some additional capacity and pooling resources in order to put kind of a best foot forward. I think that one of the things that's often not discussed is the fact that the federal agencies are looking for really impactful projects, right? They're looking for transformative projects. That's what they're under a really strong mandate from Congress and from the White House to deliver on in a short time frame. When you're talking about a one-off infrastructure project in a small community, it's probably not rising to the level where the committee at such and such federal agency, it catches their attention in terms of being really compelling or being really impactful. 
And so one of the best strategies that I think folks can take is to take several steps back and to actually increase the scope of projects. So to combine multiple projects together, go in on a coordinated approach, again, like from a regional standpoint, so that the governments can tell a more compelling narrative about how transformative and how impactful this work is going to be. And you mentioned the word transformational generally. I wonder if you could put a point on that in terms of what you see as some of the major transformational opportunities for particularly local governments through IJA. Yeah, so my take on on this is that the scale of funding and the scope of what the funding can be used for is so enormous and it is so rare. It's once in a generation, right? The last time we saw federal funding like this, it was when we built the federal highways, when we built the highway system. And it'll be the case moving forward. We're not going to see this type of infrastructure spending for many, 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 many years. And so the scope and scale in and of itself is transformative. And I think that the question, the outstanding, is how can state and local governments actually funnel the money to the projects that are most transformative for their communities, right? So there's no question, it's a ton of federal spending. It's gonna be transformative no matter what, just simply because of the amount of activity and the dollar amount. But what the actual impact is and how transformative and what it's actually, what goals it's actually achieving, I think is a huge open question. And the way that that gets answered is based on a organization by organization set of decisions about what they choose to put forward, right? So there's this big question about, are they going to just choose to build more of the same? Or are they going to use this as an opportunity to do things really differently and to build, for instance, transportation systems that are truly safe and sustainable? And to use this as a jumping off point to address climate change or to address equity issues or whatever that may be. Some of these like really serious kind of existential threats to our communities and to infrastructure systems. I think this is why this work matters so much, which is that getting IJA kind of signed into law was the first step. But now the real work begins at the state and local level, because at the end of the day, spending federal money well is actually really, really difficult. And nobody talks about it. Or maybe people talk about it, but it happens in wonky conversations like this, and it doesn't get the airspace that it deserves. And what role would you and the Atlas team kind of like to play in helping to accomplish more? What I've heard a little bit of is people thinking about their their long-range investment plans and saying, oh, now we're going to be able to accomplish year 15 in year two because there's a lot more money. And that could be great if the right things are on the table. What role do you want to play in terms of seeding those ideas of, of what could be done in a transformative way in communities? Yeah, I mean, I hope that we are inspiring state and local government leaders about what's possible 
what's what's possible and what's realistic to achieve with the money. I don't want it to be pie in the sky ideas that could never happen and that haven't happened in the United States before. But I want to put forward kind of aspirational projects. Like you're striving for or aspired to something that's just a, a little bit out of reach, right? It's one step above where you're comfortable. It's not the same stuff that you've done a million times. It's not just more of the same. It's a little outside of your comfort zone, but it's something that's realistic because other communities that are a little further along have done similar things. We want to be inspiring folks about what is possible. And that's why in the infrastructure handbook that we put together in each section for each sector, we pulled together case studies of inspiring projects that could be funded as a part of IJA funding. So really inspiring EV charging projects or really inspiring microgrid projects or really inspiring lead service line replacement projects or whatever it may be. We go through program by program and pull inspiring case studies for exactly that reason. And then the other thing that I really hope that we're doing is bringing state and local government leaders together online to share what they're doing. Again, with the goal of kind of crowdsourcing ideas and crowdsourcing advice. This isn't something that anybody should be going alone right now. Everybody is facing very similar challenges. So it makes sense to pool resources and to pool ideas. And if people haven't found their way to the site yet, I mean, what are the best ways to get engaged and stay up to date on the Atlas? It's basically just the-atlas.com. And when you land on the site, you'll see there's a tab at the top that says case studies. That'll take you into the case study database. The entire thing is free and publicly available. You don't even need to be signed in to use the case study database. If you want to use the following trending topics in local government functionality, and if you want to use the discussion forum functionality, you can request to join. It's free and it takes two minutes to request to join. And that gives you backend access. We go through and we verify that you are who you say you are and that you actually and that you actually work for a state or local government. But if you do, you'll get accepted, you know, like within a day. And that's definitely the best way to keep in touch with us. For instance, we're doing getting ready to do a series of small group listening sessions around IJA, specific topics in IJA to facilitate this sharing of ideas. And all of that will go out through our community members first. So the way that you'll get access to stuff like that is just by requesting to join. Well, Ellery, I want to thank you for taking time to share the good work that you and the team are doing. And I hope to have you back when you can look back at all the exciting member stories of things they accomplished with IJA (laughs) over the next few years. But thanks again for joining me today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. To engage with Ellery and the Atlas, browse to the-atlas.com. For more on the Institute for Public Administration, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to First State Insights and tune in again soon. Take care.